Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Totally random way to start the episode, but just yesterday I started watching Jerry Seinfeld's new Netflix special. Have you seen it? Uh, no, I saw a single joke from it on Twitter, which made me... I mean, I was already not particularly inclined to watch Jerry Seinfeld's new Netflix special, I confess, but um, the joke about how, like, what was it, like, smartphones are getting smarter, why, why aren't we... That's observational comedy. That's, that's, you, you see it and it's like, we're all thinking that, but he's the one who observed it and put it into words. <laughs> what I've seen of the Netflix special, it kind of blew me away because I think it may be one of the least funny things I've ever seen. Those um, are big words because you and I, I mean, just together have consumed some pretty unfunny things. I mean, I love Jerry Seinfeld because, you know, he's obviously one of the richest people in the world. And whenever I see him doing comedy on a talk show, he often does this routine where he talks about how unreasonable it is that movie theaters make you clean up after yourself. And the punchline always comes down to something like, "You, if you charge me too much for a popcorn and a movie ticket... This is what I do with it. And he shows himself like unloading it on the floor, which is so funny because I actually don't think he's probably been to a movie theater since 1986, I want to <laughs> say. So, you know, an observational comedian will always have trouble if he can no longer observe, you know. <laughs> and so all of his routines now feel like a guy who sort of vaguely remembers what it was like to be a normal person. He's always talking about, oh, you know, you, you know, when you're in the supermarket, Uh, you're in the bread aisle but this new special i know he's regarded as such a master craftsman he comes out and he's on the stage and the audience is there and it's as if there's nothing between them it's as if this very kind of immaculate vacuum sealed comedy man came out on stage and was talking into a mirror you know there's no rapport between him and the audience He's like yelling his comedy at the audience. It's not paced to their laughter. And his first bit is this thing about, you know, you had to go through a lot to get here tonight. Just think about how many times you said tickets tonight. Do you have the tickets? Do I have the tickets? Where are the tickets? Do we have two tickets? Does she have a ticket? Did you get her a ticket? Should we go? Should should I drive? Should you drive? Should we drive? Should we get an Uber? Should we get a cab? It is such a, you know, he he talks about this as if it's, as if like ordinary daily life is this incredible Kafka-esque ordeal. You know, he'll talk about going to a restaurant and like, should I order this? Should I order that? You know, you're, you're walking down the street and should I go left? Should I go right? All of a sudden you're overwhelmed with options. You don't want to walk anymore. And this has always been his comedy. It's worse than ever now because nobody's like saying no to him and nobody's giving him feedback. Um, and also give a man a reputation for being a funny man and he can just coast along forever and people will just assume oh well that guy's got to be funny like the audience laughs not heartily but they laugh in that pavlovian way that they laugh at rupert pupkin you know (laughs) a recent joke of his that i heard was uh it's there's no point even delivering it in like the tone of 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 a joke because because it's it's not a joke but the ops the so-called observation is something like when people get a cab i mean what do they do they they catch a cab right but when you get an Uber, you know, what do you do? You, you, you take, you take, you take, you take an Uber. Uh, that's like, that's like a bad parody of a George Carlin bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a joke or it's barely a joke. I mean, would you say this, would you say this was worse, this special is worse than the Carmen Esposito one that, that we watched? Cause that one, I mean, granted, I don't watch a lot of Netflix comedy specials. I tend to avoid most of them like a plague. I'm sure there's a few good ones, but that one was rough. That one was really bad, but I actually do think this one is arguably worse. It's equally not funny, but also it, it, it's so vacuum sealed off from anything happening in the world. Like it's the work of this very rich and privileged man who is, you know, off on probably Elon Musk's yacht somewhere sort of speculating what observational comedy must be like. A guy whose main contribution, his main, the main thing he's produced for the past 10 years is a series where he drives around in like various expensive vintage cars that he owns with other famous people. Definitely a guy in touch with a guy, a guy well positioned to make observations that will resonate in a humorous way with the average person. He goes around and he makes fun of the waiters and he, and he makes fun of their service. And then he and, you know, Jay Leno or whoever his guest is will go to a local store and make fun of the things in the local store. 
But yeah, you know, say what you will about Carmen Esposito, but at least it's like attached to some sort of a zeitgeist. At least it has some connection to reality. (laughs) Well, folks, today is, uh, this is very much a Will episode, as you've probably already deduced from the title and the thumbnail. Will's apparently been watching bad comedy specials to get through quarantine. But another thing you've been doing, as has been clear from your Twitter the last few weeks, is binge-watching Siskel and Ebert clips, which maybe is just something you kind of do reflexively anyway. But since this is going to be a very uh, Will Sloan-centric episode, there was something else that you tweeted recently that I wanted to to talk about, uh, which was your projected uh, chronology of Bruce Lee's life which I think you were getting some pushback because of how mean it was. But uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty <laughs> funny. Um, I mean, I always think you're at your best when you're when you're being mean, especially about things that you like. Yeah, yeah I've been thinking a lot about Bruce Lee lately. I just watched uh, one of his movies again, The Big Boss, which I thought was not particularly good, uh, although I would consider myself a Bruce Lee fan. But I, I think a lot about Bruce Lee because... When I was a kid growing up, I was definitely one of those kids who took Bruce Lee and the Bruce Lee myth that face value. I loved all the stories about his life. I was the kind of kid who, if you were watching Enter the Dragon with me, and why would you be? But let's say you were. I would be the one saying, you know, they had to slow the film down because his his fists were too fast to capture on screen. You know Bruce Lee's not really dead, don't you? Yes, in a book. What he did was he faked his own death so that he could work undercover for the Hong Kong police, infiltrating drugs gangs in the triads. Yeah, I reckon that's true. Yeah, I reckon that's true, because if you were going to send someone undercover to investigate the triads, you'd probably want the world's most famous Chinese film star. (laughs) Something I think a lot about is wondering what would have happened after Bruce Lee died. You know, he's one of those figures like James Dean, where the allure of Bruce Lee is that of unfulfilled potential. He died, I think, a month before Enter the Dragon was released. He only made four action movies. That's the bedrock of his legacy. You know, his legacy has as much to do with the stories of his life than it does any of his movies. All of his movies are, to some degree or another, kind of shabby. Like, there's no masterpiece in there. And, you know, there's a temptation to think, what would this man have accomplished had he lived longer? And without just recapping my my tweet, something that I've come to realize recently is Bruce Lee quite possibly would not have lasted that much longer as a central pop culture figure had he continued. I was revisiting this great biography of Bruce Lee by an author named Matthew Pauly, where it was talking about how hands-on he was on the set, how he considered his movies as primarily a vehicle for his philosophy of the martial arts. He would constantly be in the director's hair, and he would do things like, during the making of The Big Boss, he did a fight scene with these henchmen where he insisted on knocking all three of the henchmen out with just one kick, one kick each. And they said, you can't do that. You've got to have an actual fight scene. And he said, but but that doesn't make sense. If I have to fight for a long time against these three henchmen, what will it be like when I face the big boss? I'm great. You know, I'm a great fighter. I'm just imagining him becoming some kind of Steven Seagal-like figure, like latter-day Steven Seagal, where, you know, if he was alive today, he'd still be making movies, but it'd be sort of 15 or 20 years since his last uh, theatrical release. Every film would be recorded in a country that's, you know, another hundred miles further east into Europe, eventually making straight-to-DVD bilge at, like, uh, something that's barely a studio in, like, Azerbaijan or something. I mean, the difference between Bruce Lee and Steven Seagal is that Bruce Lee actually had a philosophy of the martial arts, He was a genuine innovator in the martial arts, and he wanted to use movies as a platform to espouse that philosophy. So there was more substance to him than there was Steven Seagal. And yet I think it would have been very easy, had even just two or three years passed, for his particular style, his particular his particular kind of fight scene, where it's just him like dispatching 50 guys with one punch each. I think that would have gone out of fashion really quick. I think the mystique around him of this invincible super fighter would have very quickly been tarnished once he started to behave a little more badly, say, in his personal life. There's a clip of Bruce Lee, and I mean, we should do a Bruce Lee episode at some point uh, for sure, but there's a clip of Bruce Lee that you introduced me to where he's talking about, you know, his fighting style and his kind of philosophy of of fighting and it's what he's saying is it's kind of it's kind of drivel but he says it with such confidence and such charisma 
that it actually sort of comes to mean something. I think I know the clip you're talking about. It's where he's like, be like water, my friend. Exactly. Yeah. There's almost like a Tom Cruise-like energy to him where he's kind of small and he's speaking nonsense. And yet (laughs) uh, he has such a kind of, I don't know, just personal presence that it uh, it somehow feels more substantive than it actually is. And I just think how easily that could have been punctured had he lived even just a few years longer, had he lived just a little bit longer to humiliate himself in public. His inevitable downfall wouldn't even necessarily have been just his fault. A lot of his mystique is the idea that he was the first Asian guy who became a star in Hollywood, and he died just before it was about to happen. But you can imagine if he made one more movie in Hollywood and it flopped and Hollywood probably would have had no more use for him. Because, you know, an Asian martial arts star, how many chances were they going to give that guy? So I'm here I'm here to say that if you, like me, have been mourning Bruce Lee's death for forever, and you often rue the unrealized potential, don't worry, there's a good chance that he went out on top. I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. As written, however, I strongly recommend skipping Good Burger. Well, I don't recommend the movie either, Gene, but I think these are two pretty bright kids. I don't know why you think they're dumb. They figure out the entire situation. They save Good Burger. They outsmart the competition. They get everything they want. They play, Who could be smarter than that? Do you think that Ed is a smart character? Or do you think? Ed oh, he's very concluded? smart in the way that he goofs on people with his wordplay. In other yes. words, you believe that Ed is totally an act. He is not saying what he really thinks when he speaks. Uh, I believe that to a degree, yes. He is absolutely performing as di- Ed, yes. That we completely disagree. And even so, he's not dumb, even if he isn't an act. Folks, this is a very exciting night for me. First I got to talk about Bruce Lee, and now I got to talk about Siskel and Ebert. As Luke mentioned earlier, I've lately been obsessed with watching clips on YouTube of Siskel and Ebert. I'll explain this, but first some context may be required. Our younger or overseas listeners may not have grown up seeing two thumbs up, way up, on every movie ad. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were two Chicago-based movie reviewers who worked for the Tribune and Sun-Times newspapers, respectively. Together, they hosted a popular movie review TV show through various incarnations from 1975 to Gene's death in 1999. For some viewers in the pre-internet age, this show was a formative influence. For others, it was a novelty show about the arguments between two men who clearly didn't particularly like each other. As someone with a great interest in the history of arts criticism generally, and film criticism in particular, Siskel and Ebert loom large in my mind. They were unquestionably the most famous and influential critics of their day, and it is said that their judgments genuinely impacted the fates of many movies, particularly independent movies. But in their heyday, they were considered something of a joke among serious cinephiles. In the 60s and 70s, critics like Pauline Kael, Andrew Saris, and John Simon wrote lengthy, challenging film criticism for large audiences in major publications. But Siskel and Ebert became famous through their soundbite reviews and flippant binary judgments that reduced movies to thumbs up or thumbs down. Siskel and Ebert took seriously their status as America's most famous movie reviewers, and they tried to wield their power responsibly. For example, they made a point of reviewing foreign, independent, and documentary films on their show. However, what fascinates me about their show now is how it reveals the inherent problem of consumer report art criticism. Siskel and Ebert are positioned to us as experts who will teach us whether or not we should spend our hard-earned money on a movie. Their job is to elevate viewers' taste, but we're also expected to trust them because they represent normalcy. They were ordinary-looking men, some might even say they had faces for radio, which gave them credibility as everyman. They were also white, college-educated, upper-middle-class men, and their taste reflects that. And unlike some critics, they did not really have a combative relationship with Hollywood. A typical criticism, if I could aggregate thousands of hours of watching Siskel and Ebert into one line, it would be something like, We've said it time and time again on this show. Burt Reynolds is picking bad scripts, and it's his fans who suffer. 
That said, their show was also a sitcom in which they played cartoon versions of serious critics and constantly undermined each other's credibility with petty sniping. This is something that Johnny Carson and David Letterman understood when they frequently invited Siskel and Ebert on their shows. When David Letterman asks them, So boys, tell me about the big summer blockbusters. And then Gene Siskel starts answering the question seriously. Well, folks, the reason I've been watching so much Siskel and Ebert lately is that they are so, so funny to me. Now, Luke, I know that you have some relationship. We've talked about it a number of times before with the criticism of Roger Ebert, at least. Ebert was the better writer of the two. He, in fact, had a Pulitzer Prize, and he was a prolific author of books, whereas Siskel was not. What are your general feelings about him and, I guess, even by extension, Siskel? Well, unlike you, I haven't spent a ton of time watching the show. I, you know, I've, I've obviously seen a fair bit of it, and I, you know, we watched some clips for this episode. But I wasn't really into film as a teenager in the way that you were. Not until I was 17 or 18. I was very risk averse when I was a kid in terms of what I would watch. You know, I remember watching the same Adam Sandler and Jim Carrey movies just over and over and over again. You know, and when I was 17 or 18, I started buying cheap VHSs. I guess they were just kind of, VHSs were on their way out. And that was kind of the moment where you could go and you could get The Godfather, like all three parts of The Godfather on VHS for like $5. And because I wasn't exactly a person of means at the time, that was kind of my main way of getting into film. And I would just, I would, if something was famous, I would just kind of grab it um, and I'd watch it. Probably would have been a lot better. I probably would have appreciated what I was watching a lot more if I'd been into Siskel and Ebert. I mean, I knew about them because as you said, their names were emblazoned on the cover of pretty much every every movie that was coming out at the time. But I later discovered Ebert through his books, The Great Movies, which are basically just aggregated Ebert review collections. And, you know, he's somebody that I actually continue to find very useful, not because he's a, an intellectual or particularly interesting thinker, but because he is an appreciator of cinema. I mean, he's somebody who really, really likes you know, the art of film in all of its different shades. And so, you know, you can go to his books, The Great Movies, and you can kind of get a sense of this is what the normie canon of cinema is, um, or a little, you know, a little more than the normie canon of cinema, um, but from somebody who just really, really likes film. And that is incredibly useful when, you know, you're sitting down to watch The Searchers or something like that. And you want to read about, you know, the take from somebody who has the opinion of a of a relatively smart appreciator. And somebody who's done kind of basic homework to give you the cultural context that the movie emerged from. Yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, I don't find Ebert particularly perceptive when it comes to movies that are in any way heterodox, ideologically, aesthetically, uh, films that are transgressive in any kind of way he often struggles with. That's something you've written about, um, and, and we can we could talk about that later. But so I guess in some, I don't find Ebert as interesting, ultimately, as some of the other critics that you've introduced me to, people like Robin Wood and, and Jay Hoberman, people like that, because he doesn't have a, a really distinctive critical perspective. Um, and he's not somebody who thinks deeply about, you know, theory or things like that. But I do find him very useful as, as just kind of a, an appreciator of cinema. And he has a lot of, you know, sharp observations that he's made about particular films over the years. I find those collections, the great movies, I find them useful. I still occasionally consult them just to get a sense of what the received wisdom of around a certain a certain movie is. That's That sounds like damning with faint praise, but I genuinely mean it. I think the fact that it's called The Great Movies and not something like My Great Movies is indicative of the project that Ebert thought he was doing. Well, he's the Time magazine of film criticism. Yeah, he, he's he's an enforcer of sorts. He's, a, he's both an ambassador and an enforcer. I mean, I think that when he started that Great Movies project, and those books were collections of reviews that he would publish in the Chicago Sun-Times every Sunday of some great movie or another, you know, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, The Seven Samurai, movies of that caliber. I think he thought of it as a way to introduce the classics to a younger generation, but what it also does is sort of enforce the idea that there, there is a canon. There is such a thing as the great movies. 
which, you know, it is useful, I suppose. And it's particularly useful now when it seems like those canonical classics are less appreciated than ever. And many people writing about film don't feel the need to brush up on canon. But one of the reasons why I find Ebert less compelling as I get older is there's always a part of him that seems to be trying to articulate what the consensus view is as setting and enforcing certain rules of decorum in the popular understanding of film, whereas I think the best critics sort of sort of own their own worldviews, you know? I mean, this raises all the familiar questions about the whole concept of canon and all the familiar debates surrounding it. Um, it's a concept that I actually find pretty useful. It's the classic idea of canon that most people will already be familiar with is just that there are these kind of signature texts, or in this case, films, that anchor a particular genre, anchor a particular tradition, anchor a particular medium, and the kind of classic critical case against that, depending on how strongly you, you apply it, is that the idea of canon cleaves to the kind of ultra-orthodox, um, that it's insufficiently accommodating to things that actually may be important but were not considered important perhaps when they were developed. So for example, I studied political theory and, you know, the classic kind of Plato to NATO canon of theorists you read will often omit figures like Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote the very important book of Indication of the Rights of Women. That's something that for the longest time, you know, has not been included in the canon of political theory for no other reason than that, you know, it's an early feminist text and a woman wrote it. And the canon obviously famously has a problem with over old white men being overrepresented, let's say. And of course, there's a similar thing happening in the history of film where only recently are people taking into consideration a filmmaker like, say, Oscar Micheaux, who was the first and most prolific African-American filmmaker. He's somebody whose name probably didn't appear in a film history textbook in the whole 20th century. Right. And so this gets at what's obviously correct about the kind of typical critique of the idea of canon, which is that something not appearing in, you know, Time magazine or not having gotten uh, you know, a film, for example, not having been reviewed in the New York Times or something is not the same as that film not being uh, significant. And significance can mean a lot of different things. Uh, something doesn't need to have had a mass audience for it to have been incredibly significant. Sometimes things are significant because a small number of people saw them and then they were incredibly influential. Sometimes they're significant not even because many people saw them at all, but because they got at something that was very true about their subject matter or something like that. I happen to think the idea of canon, if it's done if it's done properly, if it's done critically, can still be very useful. Everything I've said notwithstanding, you know, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, Seven Samurai isn't, uh, isn't a great or important film or whatever. But I do think this gets at what some of the limitations of uh, Ebert and his uh, and his and his shtick and kind of how he saw his role uh, ultimately are. And I mean, I'm certainly sympathetic to Ebert's great movies project when you consider that it seems like so much of the film writing nowadays is a variation of I saw this canonical movie for the first time and I didn't like it. And then here are like 10,000 hate clicks that it gets. And as we know, so many people who want to tear down the canon probably also don't want to learn the canon. Yeah, it's it's very easy these days to like write a, a searing takedown of like Last Tango in Paris without actually having watched it. <laughs> Let me give you an excerpt of one of Ebert's reviews that I think shows the limitations of his thinking. It's from a great Hong Kong comedy called Shaolin Soccer by Stephen Chow. Ebert gave it three stars and he said, Shaolin Soccer is like a poster boy for my theory of the star rating system. Every month or so, I get an anguished letter from a reader wanting to know how I could possibly have been so ignorant as to award three stars to, say, Hidalgo, while dismissing, say, Dogville with two stars. The disparity between my approval of kitsch and my rejection of angst reveals me, of course, as a superficial moron who would do anything to suck up to my readers. Not at all. What it means is that the star rating system is relative, not absolute. When you ask a friend if Hellboy is any good, you're not asking if it's any good compared to Mystic River. You're asking if it's any good compared to The Punisher. And my answer would be, on a scale of 1 to 4, if Superman is 4, then Hellboy is 3, and The Punisher is 2. In the same way, if American Beauty gets 4 stars, then the United States of Leland clocks in at about 2. And that's why Shaolin Soccer, a goofy Hong Kong comedy, gets 3 stars. It is piffle, yes, but superior piffle. 
If you are even considering going to see a movie where the players zoom 50 feet into the air and rotate freely in violation of everything Newton would have held sacred, then you do not want to know if I thought it was as good as Lost in Translation. So I find that passage uh, very funny, first of all, because of the movies that, that, he, that he picks as his examples. You know, Mystic River, American Beauty, Lost in Translation... It's very funny to me that these are the movies that he picks as, like, the four-star movie. <laughs> and it's also funny to me that he can't see that Shaolin Soccer is actually a better movie than American Beauty. That is actually quite a, I mean, it's quite solid prose, isn't it? And, but, and yet what mm-hmm. it's saying is, is, like, is quite dumb. And it's yes. also, it's also, like, a too clever by half point about, like, well, you know, art is all just kind of relative and like like all of us have actually experienced a version of the debate that he's having with himself and his readers and he's just able to articulate this very dumb and well-trodden debate in a better than average sort of way, but it's that's not actually getting at anything very interesting. And yeah, as you say, it's very funny that the things that he reaches for as the example, it's like, look, I'm not saying this film is as good as like Great, great film, great cinema, like American Beauty and yeah, Mystic yeah, yeah. River. Like, like there's a, there's a, there's an ingrained, I think, kind of class bias in that unspoken assumption. You know, he, he just, he just assumes that, well, of course, of course, we all know American Beauty. Well, and why are, why are those movies good? They're good because they look a certain way. They have certain mm-hmm. production values and because they have a certain leaden seriousness to them that he just kind mm-hmm. of credulously accepts. But so I think that people, uh, we've spent a lot of time with Ebert here. And I mean, I think, I mean, for my part, Ebert's the one I've thought a lot more about. But I suspect a lot of our listeners are like me and that they don't know as much about the other character, Gene Siskel. So what can you tell us about him as, as kind of our, as the Michael and Us podcast, Siskel and Ebert professor in residence? Ebert started as a movie critic in Chicago in 1967. I think Ebert was 27 years old. So he was the youngest critic in town. Uh, he came in at just the right time. He was praising movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, other of those big generation gap type movies. But then after a few years, along came this other guy, Siskel, who I think was possibly even younger than Ebert. So the two of them, for the first 10 or so years of their acquaintance together, were apparently very, very bitter and contentious rivals. And you can see that in in their episodes they never seem to have entirely gotten over the rivalry. They never seem to, they always seem uneasy around each other. And it's funny when you consider that they basically have the exact same taste. I mean, I know that they are famous for their disagreements, but they are very similar men with very similar values. And and the kind of contours of their worldviews are more or less identical. And they seem to really hate each other because, I, I guess, because game recognized game? I don't know. You know, uh, because my brain has been permanently broken by doing our podcast every week, all I could think about watching, we watched a couple clips each for this uh, for this episode of Michael and Us, but we watched a full episode where they talked about Full Metal Jacket and uh, Spaceballs, among other things. And all I could think about was... The argument in the book Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, they lay out the way that consent is manufactured in the U.S. media when it comes to war, where a fake spectrum is created between hawks and doves, where so if you're a hawk on the Vietnam War... You know, your take is, we need to send in more troops. We need to drop more bombs. We have to stick this thing out. We have to stay the course. And if you're a dove, you know, you say, it's time to bring our boys home. You know, the war, whatever its good intentions, the war is lost. We have to we have to tuck our tails between our legs and run. And obviously, that's not a real debate because both of those are actually pro-war perspectives. But yeah. but but the fact that those two positions uh, vis-a-vis Vietnam, Iraq, or whatever are the permitted spectrum of opinion in the mainstream media, it gives the impression there's a vigorous debate going on. So Siskel and Ebert are kind of that, but for, uh, you know, normie film criticism. I think it's telling that during their lifetimes, people would often refer to them as the fat one and the thin one, 
people would confuse their names because, I mean, it would take a scholar like myself, somebody who has immersed himself in Siskel and Ebert Arcana for his whole life, to, to be able to tell you what the differences in worldview are. I mean, I, I could tell you. I could tell you that uh, Siskel is a little harder on movies, that Ebert Ebert is a little, has a, a bigger heart, is a little bit more welcoming of movies. And I can tell you that Ebert is more uncomfortable in Siskel's presence than vice versa. But those things are not <laughs> visible to the naked eye. Also, those aren't really ideological differences, are they? Those are just kind of no. differences of personal affect and just, I don't know, Ebert is a little bit intimidated by something about Siskel's manner or something, which doesn't ultimately have great implications when it comes to just critically discussing cinema, does it? No, absolutely not. So I chose that episode from 1987 where they review Full Metal Jacket, Spaceballs, and a couple of other movies. Uh, this is my my favorite episode of the show because <laughs> it has it has some of the most vigorous debate in it. And it, it's also, when you take a step back from it, it's also just like patently absurd and ridiculous. And it just shows everything that's kind of stupid about this show and this format. The others come up behind and we can clearly see where the sniper is. Then when you get to that reverse shot and he pushes in, yeah. that is a cliche, Gene. I mean, no. I, when I saw that push, I was so disappointed in Kubrick. This whole sequence is taken right out of absolutely routine grade B Republic Rod, World War II war movies I of have, guys running out there to try to I save their never, body and somebody I else have shooting never, at them. I have never felt a kill in a movie quite like that. Ever oh, in any I, Vietnam I, film. Oh, not in Apocalypse Now, not no, in The Deer no, Hunter. not like not, that. Not, in not like that. Uh, well, then in that case, you're going to love The Late Show because they have kills like that every night in black and white starring John Wayne starting they don't about have, midnight. They, uh, but they don't have movies like this film for oh, Metal I, I disagree. Okay. And I disagree particularly about the part that you like. Well, that's just one scene. I like the whole film. It's full of great scenes. Full Metal Jacket. Later in the show, we'll take a look at two Stanley Kubrick films that are true classics on video cassette. It starts where they're reviewing Full Metal Jacket, and Ebert gives it thumbs down. He says that there's a lot to admire in it, but ultimately it's it's disappointing. The second half is too long. Too much of it's too familiar. It, it's not up to the standard of a Stanley Kubrick masterpiece. And then Siskel said, well, I actually think it is a masterpiece. I think it's got some incredible stuff. What about this scene? You liked that scene? Yeah, I thought that scene was amazing. How could you like, how could you tell people not to watch this movie? That's the, that's the debate. I got to tell you, Ebert is more in the right here than Siskel because, uh, I mean, he's absolutely right that Stanley Kubrick is one of the great filmmakers of the 20th century. And this is one of his lesser movies. We've watched it together, in fact, and we came to the same conclusion. Yeah, I mean, it's not, uh, it has all kinds of obvious problems. I mean, the fact that the war segment that makes up at least half, if not two thirds of the film is clearly shot on a set that's, it's not even in Southeast Asia, it's in Britain because Kubrick was weird about traveling. You know, sometimes that particular quirk aids in his aesthetic, as in Eyes Wide Shut, where New York is clearly just a, a stage, but it actually works because the film has a kind of dreamlike energy that carries it along. That doesn't work in Full Metal Jacket. It looks ridiculous. It's also just a kind of generic war film, towards the end anyway, which Ebert correctly points out. But Ebert's, Ebert's wrong uh, about the movie in that he misses what's good about the first third of the film. Anything great in the film comes through there. Because if you were to clip the first 30 or 40 minutes of Full Metal Jacket, or if you were to somehow extend the kind of energy of those 30 or 40 minutes over the rest of the film, it probably would be a great Stanley Kubrick film. So Ebert is kind of right about it, but not for all the right reasons, and in some cases for the, for the wrong reasons. So hearing Siskel and Ebert debate this is kind of like hearing any debate between a Democratic presidential candidate and a Republican. The Democrat has kind of rhetorically anyway, like the right idea, but their actual prescriptions are completely wrong. And they're actually not in any position to deliver on any of the things they're promising. And then whereas Siskel is just this kind of malign figure who's just naively invests himself in something that's like so obviously flawed. In Siskel's defense, he doesn't really even get to lay out his case because the structure of the show is that one critic delivers a review and then the other critic delivers a sort of rebuttal. So we don't we don't really even know what Siskel's case for Full Metal Jacket is, except that he disagrees with certain points that Ebert made. I think he just likes it. I think it just comes through that he's just he just looks at it and he's like, oh, it's just a fun movie and it's good. And and uh, 
you know, he doesn't quite say that it's as good as Dr. Strangelove or Paths of Glory, which are two truly wonderful Stanley Kubrick anti-war films, but he comes pretty close to, like, he thinks that it's at least in the same category. And I, I just think that's that's absurd. I think he's just a bit of a f- credulous fanboy about Full Metal Jacket. But putting aside the the merits or lack thereof of Full Metal Jacket, imagine how different this conversation would be if it were not a consumer report conversation. <laughs> imagine how different it would be if they were not defending their decisions to give it thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> a, a problem that recurs throughout this episode is this idea of, well, there's a thumbs up and that means you go see it. And there's a thumbs down and that means you don't go see it. Now, obviously, you and I know that if you're interested in a film, you should definitely see Full Metal Jacket, whatever its flaws. It's, oh, yeah. It's an, it's an essential work. It's canon, you might say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so to talk about it in terms of thumbs up and thumbs down is pretty inherently flawed. And it's also flawed to talk about Spaceballs in terms of thumbs up and thumbs down, because they're not too far apart on Spaceballs. <laughs> I mean, they are on opposite sides of the thumb dichotomy. <laughs> But they both acknowledge that it's a hit or miss movie that has um, a a decent number of laughs. And the debate comes down to, does it have enough laughs to justify going out to see it? It's exactly like how Democrats and Republicans debate, like, invading a foreign country. (laughs) And I, I just think that those are kind of ridiculous terms to debate a movie on, right? And I mean... I, I'm, I'm conflicted on this because, sure, I guess people deserve recommendations on whether or not they should go see Spaceballs. But still, Spaceballs, in its own way, also seems like a movie that transcends this thumbs-up, thumbs-down dichotomy and would benefit from a different kind of discussion. But I think, I, I thought it was a little late for myself. But when I'm laughing, I'm not thinking it's late, I'm laughing. And I think on the judgment of this being a comedy, I laughed, it's good, enough recommendation uh i laughed it's not good enough thumbs down but if you happen to go on gene's recommendation you'll probably laugh loud a couple times so how's that for uh well at least you're wrong now on two films that's all let's keep going trying to keep my record intact when we come back i'm very sympathetic to what you're saying here because the institution of the mainstream newspaper film critic has long rubbed me the wrong way precisely because most people that have that job seem to treat it as they're doing as you say a consumer affairs report As newspapers began to shift in the 1970s towards a business model that was all about catering to advertisers, uh, all of reporting and all of commentary kind of shifted uh, along with that. So if you open a big city newspaper these days, you find less and less reporting or genuine critical commentary on anything, whether it's culture, politics, uh, science, whatever, and you find more and more stuff that is essentially just a consumer affairs report. If you open up any of Canada's papers of record, particularly on a Sunday, what do you find? You find whole sections about autos or arts or whatever that are basically just, that basically come, I mean, it's being a little reductive here, and of course it depends on the newspaper, but I think you can broadly say a lot of the stuff basically comes down to, should you buy this or not? Should you go see this or not? Whether the subject at hand is films that are in theaters, cars, or even, you know, marathons or other things that predominantly middle-class readership of these newspapers care about, what it all ultimately comes down to is you, the reader, are addressed explicitly as a consumer, as opposed to somebody who is any kind of citizen of, you know, the country you live in vis-a-vis politics or, you know, a citizen of the arts who, you know, might have your own tastes and opinions and and you kind of want to see what other people think about a ballet or a film or, or an opera or a book or whatever. It's just about setting a normie barometer for taste and, yeah, giving something a thumbs up or a thumbs down, which is not ultimately very fulfilling or useful and does a disservice to a lot of the things that are actually being discussed and makes film criticism so much more boring than it needs to be. There's a particular Peter Travers review, for example, Peter Travers being like the poor man's Ebert, right? The guy who, uh, he's like a synthesis of Ebert and Andy Borowitz, where his whole thing is reverse engineering entire reviews around like a pun or some kind of play on the (laughs) title. So a new Rocky movie, he builds the whole thing around calling it a knockout. My favorite Peter Travers line is the first line of his review of Dogma. The first commandment of Dogma 
Thou shalt not stop laughing. <laughs> Boo. Uh, but the one the one I was thinking of was his review of The Dark Knight Rises. For those that remember the debates around the movie, right, there's a whole debate about, you know, is it making some kind of, you know, uh, commentary on the Occupy movement or something? And the amazing thing about Travers is that he is obviously dialed into the fact that people are having these conversations. But then the final line of the, of the review is something like, is Christopher Nolan equating Bane's Rebellion with Occupy? You be the judge. And it's like, buddy, you're the professional film critic. You tell us. This is a, yeah. this is, you're abdicating responsibility here. And because the whole thing defaults to kind of a consumer review, Peter Travers doesn't even feel the need to, like, he's not even accountable to his own readers enough to have an opinion about this incredibly big film that millions of people are seeing. The Full Metal Jacket episode of Siskel and Ebert climaxes with the debate around the film Benji the Hunted. Which I confess was the only one I hadn't I hadn't seen. It's a film about a lovable dog who is on the run. And Siskel gives it a scornful thumbs down and Ebert gives it an enthusiastic thumbs up, saying that it's a terrific kids movie. And during their their video picks segment where they talk about Doctor Strange Love and Paths of Glory, Benji the Hunted comes up again because they revisit their full metal jacket debate and Siskel finally lands the low blow that you know that he you know the whole episode he's building up towards. He's been thinking about it. He knows it's a cheap shot, but he's finally gonna do it. He's gonna say, You gave Benji the hunted thumbs up but full metal jacket thumbs down and boy that unleashes Ebert's fury. Ebert knows that Benji the Hunted isn't even one-fifth, it isn't even one-tenth the film that Kubrick's is, but these ratings are relative. They're context-based. And and you know that, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself. It's like, yeah, we all know that it's no Mystic River or American Beauty. <laughs> I guess I'm sympathetic to a point to what Ebert's saying. I mean, yes, when you go see Benji the Hunted with your kids, you're probably not expecting to see something of the caliber of a Stanley Kubrick movie. And yet, if you just take a step back, the whole debate where they're debating whether or not Full Metal Jacket deserves a thumbs up while also Benji the Hunted deserves a thumbs up. I mean, it's such a ridiculous way to frame a debate about... I mean, first of all, there are two movies that don't even belong in the same conversation together. That's one of the things I love about this episode is how it flattens all of the movies into this one kind of paste. Right. Full Metal Jacket, Spaceballs, a kid's movie about a dog. And they all get five minutes. <laughs> They're all, Like in a perfect world, I would say, hey, why not devote half an hour to Full Metal Jacket? But, it, you know, the fact that Ebert, I mean, because it all it all uh, converges on the debate around how many stars you give something. And Ebert's mm-hmm. argument is that, well, sure, I gave this movie three stars. And I, you know, and he's probably given, if you go back through other three star reviews he's done, I mean, he's probably given some, like, very good films three stars. A little movie called The Godfather Part 2 got three stars. The Godfather Part 2 gets three stars. But Ebert would come at you with a defense of that. And he would say, well, look, we all know The Godfather Part 2 is in a different league than this. But these things are all relative. And that, again, speaks to the fact that what he's fundamentally doing is giving a kind of consumer review. He's saying, for this being what what it is... Uh, which is a light kids movie, it's three out of four, which might be useful in a certain narrow sense, but means that he's abdicating having any kind of macro critical perspective on, on where this actually fits, even though he's a devotee of the idea that film is a canon and that it has, you know, these particular, you know, totemic works around which everything else is is erected or or whatever there are a few times in ebert's great movie reviews where he he revisits a movie that he gave maybe three stars um the godfather 2 is one example blade runner is one the good the bad and the ugly is another one that he gave three stars in fact his great movies review of the good the bad and the ugly is interesting because he says something along the lines of and again i'm paraphrasing Uh, Seeing it in 1967, I responded strongly, but I gave it three stars instead of four because in those days I valued prudence over instinct and I didn't think that a spaghetti western could be art, which which I think is like a, a decent admission by him. But in all of those reviews, in all of those great movies reviews where he talks about a movie like that, there's always a sense of him being like, well, okay, 
I'm letting down the drawbridge and letting this into the canon. Well, this gets at something that I very much wanted to talk about, which is your great essay in Hazlitt from 2017 on Ebert's zero-star reviews. So Ebert, of course, wrote thousands and thousands of reviews throughout his career, but there are only something like 40 or 50, uh, 40 or 50 movies that he gave zero stars to. And you read every single one of these and came out of this which, with, I think, a pretty interesting thesis about uh, you know, Ebert's style of film criticism. So what were some of the films that Ebert viscerally hated and what do you think was, was wrong with his analysis? Well, I think there's, there's a solid portion of those movies, like maybe, maybe half of those movies that are genuinely very bad movies, movies that nobody watches, nobody remembers, movies like an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, or Eric the Viking, or Rob Reiner's North, stuff like that that's remembered, if at all, they're only remembered for the fact that Ebert gave them zero stars. But I also think that maybe half, maybe a third of those movies that are kind of interesting, and, I, and I'm not saying all of the interesting ones are good necessarily, but there's an Andy Warhol film in there. There's a Jerry Lewis film. There's Ken Russell's The Devils. There's Caligula, a, a Mondo film called Africa Audio. Uh, there, there are a number of movies that are very spiky and difficult and that are well-remembered today, or at least well-remembered among certain audiences. But then beyond that, there are a couple of movies that I think are, are genuinely kind of borderline canonical that are in his zero star reviews. In particular, there's John Waters' film Pink Flamingos. In his review, Ebert says, Pink Flamingos appeals to that part of our psyches in which we are horny teenagers at the country fair with fresh dollar bills in our pockets and a desire to see the geek show with a bunch of buddies so that we can brag about it at school on Monday. Later in the review, he says, John Waters is a charming man whose later films, such as Polyester and Hairspray, take advantage of his bemused take on pop culture. His early films, made on infinitesimal budgets and starring his friends, used shock as a way to attract audiences, and that is understandable. He jump-started his career, and in the movie business, you do what you gotta do. That review is interesting to me because it's such a heteronormative review. He interprets the movie only as a piece of hype, as a piece of ballyhoo. He doesn't seem to factor in the fact that John Waters is a gay filmmaker and that, you know, if you were to do a basic queer reading of John Waters' filmography, his movies are movies where everything that society considers ugly is beautiful and vice versa. There's another review that he did, a zero-star review of Freddy Got Fingered, which I'm a fan of, and I think, Luke, possibly you are too. We we should, we need to revisit that one. I mean, I loved it at age 12, but, and, and I think that you and I have maybe watched it once, but... I think we maybe watched it like a decade ago too. Yeah, we, we should, we should revisit that one. You're gonna, you're gonna tell us that one has a radical queer energy that, that Ebert missed. No, I, th- I think that movie is pretty hetero, but... Uh, <laughs> But but he gave it he gave it zero stars and then a year later he reviewed another Tom Green movie and he said I gave it let's see zero stars bad movie especially the scene where Tom Green was whirling the newborn infant around his head by its umbilical cord but the thing is I remember Freddie got fingered more than a year later I refer to it sometimes it is a milestone and for all its sins it was at least an ambitious movie a go for broke attempt to accomplish something. So I, I like that bit of prose. The, my only disagreement with Ebert is on whether or not Freddy Got Fingered is a good movie. I, I would contend that it is. <laughs> but I think if you look at Ebert's zero star reviews, you will see what an educated, middle class, white, liberal man was able to accept at any given moment. And and that's a lot. Well, it's a lot because because he does, he is genuinely appreciative of of, of some art. Yes, he is curious, he is empathetic, but he's not necessarily going to accept Pink Flamingos. Well, I think that the reason is that the film is a thriller and a shocker. I mean, mm-hmm. there are people that get hurt badly yeah. in real life, That's and right. I think that this is a legitimate one. This is not a simple mad slash okay, then movie. then why is it a comedy? Because he wants to set you up. He's a director, mm-hmm. and he wants to play you like all the directors, the great directors want to do. He wants to play you like a piano, which is have you smile and then swing you right into the some depression. Yeah, well, the next I think, time he, I think he somebody got wants to play me like a piano, he'd better get some music that's worth listening to. I think this is a good song. One something else that we revisited for this episode was the famous Siskel and Ebert debate 
about the movie Blue Velvet, which is a movie I'm very keen to do an episode on at some point because it's one of my favorite mm-hmm. films. But Ebert just straight up doesn't get it. I mean, I don't think he actually understands the film and what it's doing on even a basic level because he can't get over just outrage at the fact that things that he sees in the film are things that he finds kind of disturbing and disgusting. So the fact that the Isabella Rossellini character in the movie, you know, has such a bad time is enough for him to kind of just dismiss the film. His criticism essentially comes down to the scenes with Isabella Rossellini are so brutal, so painful and she, as a, as a performer, she, Isabella Rossellini, is put in such difficult and potentially embarrassing situations that he resents that those scenes are surrounded by other scenes that are kind of comic. Right, which is missing. I mean, so you've just described why Blue Velvet is interesting and... Ebert was clearly missing something very fundamental about the film and what it was doing. Now, Siskel comes back with a kind of 101 take on Blue Velvet, which is nevertheless somewhat accurate. Well, you see the shiny Americana suburbia, but then you look you look underneath and wow, there's some there's some real rot at the core of suburbia. I think others have had more sophisticated analyses of the film. I mean, something that I love about Blue Velvet is no one scene is entirely comic and no one scene is entirely macabre. These two, you know, good and evil are these kind of forces that are that are always that are always infecting each other in Blue Velvet. Even even the most upsetting scenes in Blue Velvet, like that first scene with Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini, is quite darkly funny. We will have to do Blue Velvet at some point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually have the Criterion Blu-ray that has something like 40 minutes of deleted scenes, which I haven't seen yet. So that'll be, I think... uh, It's a whole new Lynch movie right there. Yeah, fertile territory for uh, for discussion. I feel like we've under-discussed David Lynch, who's a favorite of both of ours on this Mm -hmm. podcast. As we wind down our Siskel and Ebert discussion, I think I'll explain what what happened to Siskel and Ebert. Uh, Gene Siskel developed cancer in the late 90s. He passed away in 1999. The show did continue. Ebert got a new co-host by the name of Richard Roper, uh, who I'm, I'm proud to say follows me on Twitter. <laughs> I've not I've not interacted with Richard Roper. Richard, I, if, I'm sure if, he's listening to this right now. Richard, if you're listening, please, please hit me up in the DMs. Come on, Michael and us, Richard. I would so love to have Richard Roper on Michael and us. <laughs> And the Ebert and Roper era, which I have also been revisiting in my recent YouTube binge, uh, has a different energy than the Siskel and Ebert era because the tension is gone. Siskel, Ebert, they were men of approximately the same age who were genuine rivals and competitors. And after Siskel died, I think Ebert said, listen, I want I, I want to have my name first. It's time it's time to put partisan bickering aside and usher in a new era of bipartisanship where where we work together to forge the perfect normie take on the on the cinema of the day. Now watch this drive. Wearing last week? No, no this it's is not. Don't worry about it. I know he was not, wearing a brown sweater. This is not the part that's supposed to match, Slick. Mm-hmm. Give it a moment's thought. What are we doing now? The promos. Mm-hmm. Do you know what they have to match? Nothing. <laughs> No promo ever has to match anything. I thought we were about to do... Welcome to the exciting world of television. A wholly new field for you to begin to learn in. Well spoken, Roger. Well, that's uh, something that you rarely hear. A compliment really paid to you. Gene Hackman and Kevin Costner in the Pentagon thriller No Way Out. That's this week on Siskel and Ebert. I think you're going to have to redo it because you're going to get flash frames with the speed with which he read across... Those stars and titles. You won't even, you won't have a second and a half of it. Video. Okay, fine. Sound a little excited, Gene. Sound less excited, Roger. That's why we're redoing it because of what you did. It's Thriller Week on Cisco and Ebert at the movies, and we've got three it's new ones. And the movies, not at the movies. And that's why we're redoing it this time. It's Thriller Week on Cisco and Ebert in the movies, and we've got three new ones. Dennis Quaid in The Big Easy. Michael Caine in The Fourth Protocol, and Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman in No Way Out. That's this week on Cisco and Ebert and the movies and the asshole. Great. That was great. And that's Roger.